This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjini. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjini. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 13, War Against the Beyond. Section 1, Hegel. After Kant, philosophy began to develop the implications of his radical humanism. It quickly became evident that a new reign of dunces had begun, that is, brilliant minds working a progressively mined-out vein in search of wealth. Kant had set the temper of the new philosophy very plainly. Quote, Hitherto it has been assumed that all our knowledge must conform to objects. But all attempts to extend our knowledge of objects by establishing something in regard to them a priori, by means of concepts, have, on this assumption, ended in failure. We must, therefore, make trial whether we may not have more success in the tasks of metaphysics if we suppose that objects must conform to our knowledge. (coughs) This was, of course, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel's 1770 to 1831, starting point. The real is the rational. But Kant had left confusion in his wake. He had established a new concept of knowledge, but he had left, still dangling in an intellectual limbo as an affront to man, things in themselves. Although unknowable, they were there. This was a logical inconsistency. The total decree of God permits nothing to exist in and of itself. All factuality is God-created and therefore God-interpreted factuality. For humanistic man, God's decree had been replaced by man's decree. Even as God permits nothing to exist in and of itself, so man now took the same stand. In terms of man's total decree, in terms of man's independence and sovereignty, things in themselves must not exist. Thus it became imperative for the new philosophy to eliminate them. Things in themselves must be bludgeoned to death. Kant's toleration of them was intolerable and represented an element of immaturity in his system. Hegel designed to eliminate the thing in itself. It left philosophy with an unhappy dualism. Hegel's answer to it was spirit or mind, the only reality. Quote, that the truth is only realised in the form of system, that substance is essentially subject, is expressed in the idea which represents the absolute as spirit, geist, the grandest conception of all, and one which is due to modern times and its religion. Spirit is alone reality. It is the inner being of the world, that which essentially is, and is per se. It assumes objective, determinative form, and enters into relations with itself. It is externally otherness, and exists for self, Yet, in this determination, and in its otherness, it is still one with itself. It is self-contained and self-complete, in itself and for itself at once. End quote. <clears throat> Since this great social spirit, or mind, is evolving and developing, it follows that history is of central importance. Indeed, Maya could speak of the Hegelian philosophy of putting history forward as the new substance. The Kantian dualism was overcome by Hegel's concept of mind. 
Quote, he takes the Kantian dictum that all knowledge begins with experience but does not arise from experience and carries it to its ultimate conclusion. He builds the philosophy of consciousness to its apogee. His contention is that since it is preposterous to say anything at all about an object that can have no relation to our consciousness, in other words, to speak of a reality apart from a subject, the mind, rational subjectivity, must itself be proclaimed the ultimate unconditioned reality, the only true and real being. End quote. This mind, spirit, or social mind, is God, struggling to find himself in history. It is also man realising himself in freedom, as he struggles from necessity to freedom. It is also called the world spirit by Hegel. Hegel saw this world spirit working or evolving in his day to realise itself in the Protestant principle, which in reality had little to do with Luther or Calvin, but meant placing the intellectual world within one's own mind and heart and of experiencing and knowing and feeling in one's own self-consciousness all that formerly was conceived as a beyond. The Protestant principle means overcoming that dualism between man and the beyond which Kant failed to overcome. As Hegel described the plight of philosophy, quote, the present standpoint of philosophy is that the idea is known in its necessity. The sides of its disremption, nature and spirit, are each of them recognised as representing the totality of the idea, and not only as being in themselves identical, but as producing this one identity from themselves, and in this way the identity is recognised as necessary. Nature and the world or history of spirit are the two realities. What exists as actual nature is an image of divine reason. The forms of self-consciousness and reason are also the forms of nature. The ultimate aim and business of philosophy is to reconcile thought, or the notion, with reality. End quote. It was Hegel's self-imposed task to overcome this dualism, and he saw it as the duty of philosophy and the demand of history to do so. Quote, this is then the demand of all time and of philosophy. A new epoch has arisen in the world. It would appear as if the world spirit had at last succeeded in stripping off from itself all alien objective existence and apprehending itself at last as absolute spirit, in developing from itself what for it is objective and keeping it within its own power, yet remaining at rest all the while. The strife of the finite self-consciousness with the absolute self-consciousness, which last seemed to the other to lie outside of itself, now comes to an end. Finite self-consciousness has ceased to be finite, and in this way absolute self-consciousness has, on the other hand, attained to the reality which it lacked before. This is the whole history of the world in general up to the present time, and the history of philosophy in particular the sole work of which is to depict this strife. Now, indeed, it seems to have reached its goal when this absolute self-consciousness, which it had the work of representing, has ceased to be alien, and when spirit, accordingly, is realised as spirit. For it becomes such only as the result of no its knowing itself to be absolute spirit, and this it knows in real scientific knowledge. End quote. Hegel maintained a facade of religion and conservatism. 
This was necessary for the promotion and position he desired. In his early writings, Hegel had been openly anti-Christian as well as bitterly hostile to Judaism. He saw the task of philosophy as one of establishing a new religion. He strongly preferred Socrates to Christ as the more rational man. Although in his later writings the anti-Christianity is not openly stated, but rather thinly disguised, Hegel's thought, progressively, Hegel's thought moved progressively to the left even when his activities sometimes moved pragmatically to the right. Hegel's radicalism was developed fragmentarily by his heirs. Marx developed one facet, the revolutionary political aspect. From Kierkegaard through Sartre, the existential facet was steadily developed and exploited. The pragmatism of Hegel's philosophy was clearly set forth in Dewey, the philosophical concern with the analysis of contemporary meanings in the school of logical analysis, the priority given to history in a wide spectrum of followers, and so on. Hegel's radical humanism made man ultimate and freed him from the past as well as from the beyond. Development or evolution is central to Hegel's thought, hence his major concern with history. His philosophical works are in part historical commentaries. This is true not merely of his lectures on the history of philosophy and of the philosophy of history, but also of his other works as well. His phenomenology of mind cannot be properly understood except as a historical commentary. In his Science of Logic, Hegel viewed language as the expression of man's form of thinking and thus again approached his subject from an evolutionary or historical perspective, as he did also in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. His philosophy of right is declared to be the science of the state. There is nothing in Hegel to suggest a final philosophy. Hegel saw all philosophy historically as stages in the growth of man's freedom. The growth of Geist, mind, man, God, spirit, or world spirit is towards freedom, not towards a system. This freedom means the eradication of the beyond and the radical independence of man as himself true and total being. In his early writings, Hegel made clear his prime concern, to quote Kaufman's phrase. Hegel stated it plainly. It was to restore the human being again to his totality. Something of Hegel's own spirit is best seen in Heinrich Heine's Confessions, 1854. Quote, it was easy for me to prophesy which songs would be whistled and twitted one day in Germany, for I saw the, I saw the birds hatched that later sounded the new tunes. I saw how Hegel, with his almost comically serious face, sat as a brooding hen on the fatal eggs, and I heard his cackling. To be honest, I rarely understood him and it was only through subsequent reflection that I attained an understanding of his words. I believe he really did not want to be understood, hence his delivery, so full of clauses, hence perhaps also his preface for persons whom he knew would not understand him, and on whom he bestowed the honour of his familiar company that much more readily. Altogether, Hegel's conversation was always a kind of monologue, sighed forth by fits and starts in a toneless voice. The baroqueness of his expressions often startled me, and I remember many of them. One beautiful, starry-skied evening, we two stood next to each other at a window, and I, a young man of twenty-two who had just eaten well and had good coffee, 
enthused about the stars and called them the abode of the blessed. But the master grumbled to himself, the stars, hum hum. The stars are only a gleaming leprosy in the sky. For God's sake, I shouted, then there is no happy locality up there to reward virtue after death. But he, staring at me with his pale eyes, said cuttingly, So, you want to get a tip for having nursed your sick mother and for not having poisoned your dear brother? Saying that, he looked around anxiously, but he immediately seemed reassured when he saw that it was only Heinrich Beer who had approached to invite him to play whist. I was young and proud, and it pleased my vanity when I learned from Hegel that it was not the dear God who lived in heaven that was God, as my grandmother supposed, but I, myself, here on earth. This foolish pride did not by any means have a corrupting influence on my feelings, rather it raised them to the level to the level of heroism. At that time I put so much effort into generosity and self-sacrifice that I certainly outshone the most brilliant feats of those good Philistines of virtue who merely acted from a sense of duty and obeyed the moral laws. After all, I myself was now the living moral law and against the source of all right and sanctions. I was primordial sitlikite, immune against sin. I was incarnate purity. Purity. The most notorious Magdalens were purified by the cleansing and atoning power of the flames of my love, and stainless as lilies, and blushing like chaste roses as they emerged from God's embraces with an altogether new virginity. These restorations of damaged maidenhoods, I confessed, occasionally exhausted my strength. End quote. <coughs> Hegel wrote on January 23, 1807, to one of his best students, stating, Science alone is the theodicy, theodicy, an idea common to his works. Science, by its study of development or evolution, can best enable man to understand and develop his freedom. Philosophy as a science must investigate the history of philosophy and of all thought to trace the growth of concepts. The self-consciousness of mind in its sense of autonomy and its development therein is its freedom. Hegel wrote that, quote, The development of mind lies in the fact that its going forth and separation constitutes its coming to itself. This being at home with self, or coming to self, of mind, may be described as its complete and highest end. It is this alone that it desires and nothing else. Everything that from eternity has happened in heaven and earth, the life of God and all the deeds of, times, of time, simply are the struggles for mind to know itself, to make itself objective to itself, to find itself, be for itself, and finally unite itself to itself. It is alienated and divided, but only so as to be able thus to find itself and return to itself. Only in this manner does mind does mind attain its freedom, for that is free which is not connected with or dependent on another. To express this better, the activity of mind is to know itself. I am immediately, but this I am only as a living organism. As mind, I am only insofar as I know myself. End quote. Philosophy is the thought of its time, standing only above standing only above it in its critical analysis. Quote, in as far as philosophy is in the spirit of its time, the latter is determined content in the world, 
although as knowledge philosophy is above it since it places in the relation of an object since it places it in the relation of an object but this is in form alone for philosophy really has no other content End quote. there is a progressive evolution of the truth of truth but the truth is more than the final result if the word final can be allowed the truth is the whole the result is the absolute but the truth is the whole moreover it is the very nature of understanding to be a process and being a process it is rationality clearly reason is important to hegel since by the existence of independent reason man knows his autonomy and knows that that mind is both subject and object reason is the sovereign of the world moreover quote, man is an object of existence in himself only in virtue of the divine that is in him that which was designated at the outset as reason which in view of its activity and power of self-determination was called freedom End quote. spirit mind reason and freedom are closely identified quote, Matter possesses gravity in, view, in virtue of its tendency toward a central point. Spirit, on the contrary, may, defined as that, may be defined as that which has its centre in itself. It has not a unity outside itself, but has already found it. It exists in and within itself. Matter has its essence out of itself. Spirit is self-contained existence. Now, this freedom exactly... Now, this is freedom, exactly. For if I am dependent, my being is referred to something else, which I am not. I cannot exist independently of something external. I am free, on the contrary, when my existence depends upon myself. End quote. Quite naturally, Hegel saw that jealous God of Scripture, although he ascribed him to Judaism, as the negation of the individual. But reason is not the goal, nor is the life of reason. For Hegel, reason is a stage of mind, not merely a function of mind. It is man's self-consciousness as a self-contained existence, which is the goal. Quote, I am I in the sense that the I which is object for me is sole and only object, is all reality and all that is present. End quote. Meanwhile, the shape which the perfect, the perfect embodiment of spirit assumes is the state. In fact, the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. The reason for this importance given to the state is that the state in the modern age has been the instrument whereby humanistic man has declared his progressive independence from God. Quote, Substantial freedom is the abstract, undeveloped reason implicit in volition proceeding to, to develop itself in the state. End quote. The state is thus a stage, like reason, in the development of freedom. In the state, quote, freedom has found the means of realizing its ideal, its true existence. This is the ultimate result which the process of history is intended to accomplish. End quote. Hallowell's analysis of Hegel's statement is able and to the point, but it must be added that the state is not a final institution, but simply a stage in the development of freedom. The state can give way, as Marxism was later to declare, to a newer form of freedom, anarchism, for example. 
Meanwhile, morality is a political affair and ethics is the science of the state. The state is the actuality of the ethical ideal because it is man's creation, a product of the activity of self-consciousness. True personality is the goal, man knowing himself as something infinite, universal and free. Personality is not our awareness of finitude or dependence, quote, but rather man's consciousness of himself as a completely abstract ego in which every concrete restriction and value is negated and without validity, end quote. Thus, Hegel's concern lies beyond politics with the living spirit, con the concrete and human soul. Meanwhile, man suffers from alienation due to his knowledge of good and evil, to his consciousness. Quote, consciousness occasions the separation of the ego in its boundless freedom as an arbitrary choice from the pure essence of the will, that is, from the good. Knowledge, as the disannulling of the unity of mere nature, is the fall, which is no casual conception but the eternal history of spirit. For the state of innocence, the paradisiacal condition is that of the brute. Paradise is a park, where only brutes, not men, can remain. For the brute is one with God only implicitly, not consciously. Only man's spirit, that is, has a self-cognizant existence. This existence for self, this consciousness, is at the same time separation from the universe and divine spirit. If I hold to my abstract freedom, in contraposition to the good, I adopt the standpoint of evil. The fall is therefore this, the eternal mythos of man. In fact, the very transition by which he becomes man. Persistence in this standpoint is, however, evil. End quote. Both Marx and Freud were spiritual heirs of Hegel. The real world for Hegel was the world of consciousness, but this world of consciousness was essentially a developing, struggling, evolving and contradictory world. The one was the spirit, the world mind, but the spirit was also the many. Both the one and the many for Hegel were essentially descriptive historical terms. Because Hegel was at war with the beyond, determined to obliterate it, there was for him no transcendence, only pure description. His effort to introduce a note of transcendence by making freedom the direction of history meant little, because a descriptive philosophy can only analyse historically. Freedom for Hegel meant the state. For medieval man, it probably meant the church and his faith. For postmodern man, the definition may again change. What meaning does freedom have then? At this point, Hegel was insistent. Freedom meant autonomy for man. It meant man's self-consciousness of himself as infinite, universal and free as his own God in brief. It was the sovereignty and the eternal decree of the triune God which Hegel insistently excluded. This autonomy is the essence of spirit, mind, freedom and reason, but it is also this autonomy which makes man incapable of more than bare description, and that bare description fails, because all factuality, being God-created, collapses into brute, meaningless data apart from him. Hegel laid the foundations for revolution for revolution's sake, not for a world of meaning. Hess expressed the spirit of Hegel ably in his call to revolution. Quote, 
The point is that revolution today, coming as it does after a long development of democratic governance, not only does not require a goal in the established sense, it could not tolerate such a goal. Any such goal of simply making government more democratic would be actually counter-revolutionary and not revolutionary at all. Revolution today must be against such goals. Revolution today must be against the state and not for any form of the state. Revolution today must have as its goal the abolition of every agency of power which can or would be able to force standards, goals or any arbitrarily normative values upon persons who do not voluntarily hold or seek such values, standards or goals. Persons in such a concept would not renounce self-defence or self-control, just coercion. End quote. The 1969 heirs of Hegel were only beginning to develop the radicalism of their master. Section 2. Feuerbach. The radicalism of Hegel was veiled. That of the post-Hegelians was open. Ludwig Andreas Feuerbach, 1804-1872, brought out into the open the veiled anti-Christianity of his day in The Essence of Christianity, which was translated into English by the novelist George Eliot, Marion Evans. Feuerbach, in writing a preface to the second edition, observed that, quote, The basic ideas of my book, though not in the form in which they are expressed and had to be expressed under present circumstances, will certainly someday become the property of all mankind, end quote. Feuerbach had rightly understood the reception of his book among intellectuals, its ideas would be taught by schools and universities for some generations to become the property of all mankind. His thesis was a simple one, namely the anthropological, anthropological essence of religion. It was not God who made man, but man who made God. Quote, the object of a subject is nothing else than this subject's own nature objectified, such as are a man's thoughts and moral character, such is his God. End quote. It follows, therefore, that God's attributes are simply projections and purifications of man's attributes. Quote, For the divine being is nothing else than the nature of man, that is, human nature purified, freed from the imperfections of the human individual, projected into the outside and therefore viewed and revered as a different and distinct being with a nature of its own. All the attributes of the divine being are therefore attributes of man. Thus man, while he apparently humiliated himself to the lowest degree, is in truth exalted to the highest, for in and through God man aims at himself. End quote. <coughs> Briefly stated, God is the mirrored image of man. Feuerbach thus saw religion as an illusion and a dream. Marx and Freud were later to develop these concept of, concepts of religion as the opium of the masses and an illusion. For Feuerbach, quote, To live in projected dream images is the essence of religion. Religion sacrifices reality to the projected dream. The beyond is merely the here reflected in the mirror of imagination. End quote. Feuerbach openly abolished the beyond. Hegel had done it in veiled terms, but Feuerbach bluntly stated his practical conclusion. Quote, if the nature of man is man's highest being, 
If to be human is his highest existence, then man's love for man must in practice become the first and highest ethics. This is the turning point of world history. End quote. Section 3. Max Stirner. Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity was published in 1841. In 1844, there appeared Max Stirner's The Ego and His Own, which showed how religious Feuerbach and the other left-wing Hegelians still were. The communists exalted society and Feuerbach exalted man. In Erdmann's summary words, quote, From their superstitious standpoint, they forgot the main thing, the individual. It is not Feuerbach's man, which is just another spectre as the god of the orthodox, but this one ego that is what is true. Therefore, long live the egoist. Whoever respects anything, unless his respect has been bought, has a soft place in his head. To set up ideals, but also to set up any kind of community, is to be religious. The communists, therefore, are common men. The egoist is the only man. End quote. Max Stirner, pseudonym of Kaspar Schmidt, 1805-1856, in The Ego in His Own, gave a classical expression of anarchism. Instead of agreeing with those who said, shame on the egoist who thinks only of himself, Stirner made it clear that this was his proud position, for all things are nothing to me, for nothing is more to me than myself. Feuerbach had said, man is to man the supreme being, and Bruno Bauer had declared, man has just been discovered. That is, as independent of God. Well then, said Stirner, let us look more carefully at this supreme being and be sure we see him without religious presuppositions from the past. Stirner turned his contempt on the ideas of God, spirit, law and morality. If there is no God, then there is no law. If man is the supreme being, then man is his own law. For man to continue obedience to the old morality is to practice idolatry. Stirner stated his case plainly and bluntly. Quote, Take notice how a moral man behaves, who today often thinks he is through with God and throws off Christianity as a bygone thing. If you ask him whether he has ever doubted that the copulation of brother and sister is incest, that monogamy is the truth of marriage, that filial piety is a sacred duty, etc., then a moral shudder will come over him at the conception of one's being allowed to touch his sister as wife also, etc. And whence is this shudder? Because he believes in those moral commandments. This moral faith is deeply rooted in his breast. Much as he rages against the pious Christians, he himself has nevertheless as thoroughly remained a Christian, to wit, a moral Christian. In the form of morality, Christianity holds him a prisoner, and a prisoner under faith. Monogamy is to be something sacred, and he who may live in bigamy is punished as a criminal. He who commits incest suffers as a criminal. Those who are always crying that religion is not to be regarded in the state and the Jew is to be a citizen equally with the Christian show themselves in accord with this. Is not this of incest and monogamy a dogma of faith? Touch it and you will learn by experience how this moral man is a hero of faith too. Not less than Krumacher, not less than Philip II. These fight for the faith of the church, he for the faith of the state. 
or the moral laws of the state, for articles of faith both condemn him who acts otherwise than their faith will allow. The brand of crime is stamped upon him, and he may languish in reformatories in jails. Moral faith is as fanatical as religious faith. They call it that liberty of faith, then, when brother and sister, on account of a relation that they should have settled with their conscience, are thrown into prison. But they set a pernicious example. Yes, indeed, others might have taken the notion that the state had no business to meddle with their relation, and thereupon purity of morals would go to ruin. So then, the religious heroes of faith are zealous for the sacred God, the moral ones for the sacred good. End quote. This, pa <clears throat> this passage probably explains why Nietzsche, who cited many authors, did not cite Stirner. He himself may have been involved in an, in an incestuous relationship with his sister Elizabeth and had no desire to make his kinship with Stirner's philosophy an open acknowledgement. To return to Stirner, he concluded logically that if there is no God, there can be no moral law. How, then, dare we use a moral, a moral law to judge a Nero? Quote, After the annihilation of faith, Feuerbach thinks to put into the supposedly safe harbour of love. End quote. Feuerbach has only changed gods, exchanging love to the superhuman god, for love to the human god, so that Feuerbach's presupposition Theology in anthropology means only religion must be ethics. Ethics alone is religion. The result is simply another form of self-renunciation instead of self-affirmation. Like the Christians, Feuerbach is trying to deliver us to save us from ourselves. Where is man and man's freedom in all this? To live for an idea is clericalism, even if it appears in non-Christians like Robespierre, and St. Just. As against all these priests and representatives of ideal interests, quote, stands a world of innumerable personal profane interests. No idea, no system, no sacred cause is so great as never to be outrivaled and modified by these personal interests. End quote. The ego will always assert itself against the ideal. The communist, by saying that power is theft, has put a brand on property and assumed a priestly role, asserting that, quote, theft is always a crime, or at least a misdeed. Man and justice are ideas, ghosts, for love of which everything is sacrificed, end quote. Persons alone exist, not man as an idea, or justice, law and theft. The revolutionists, by serving man, cut off the hands of men. The law of these non-Christian revolutionists is more absolute and tyrannical than that of the old Christian monarchs. Quote, the monarch in the person of the royal master had been a paltry monarch compared with this new monarch, the sovereign nation. This monarchy was a thousand times se severer, stricter and more consistent. Against the new monarch, there was no longer any right, any privilege at all. How limited the absolute king of the ancient regime looks in comparison. The revolution affected the transformation of limited monarchy into absolute monarchy. 
From this time on, every right that is not conferred by this monarch is an assumption, but every prerogative that he bestows a right. The times demanded absolute royalty, absolute monarchy. Therefore, down fell that so-called absolute royalty which had so little understood how to become absolute that it remained limited by a thousand little lords. End quote. The purpose of the French Revolution was simply to replace an old and limited establishment with a new and absolute establishment. The new absolutism of the liberals and socialists left no room for man. Because it defined man in terms of its ideal, it denied the status of man to the individual and ruthlessly, ruthlessly destroyed him to make way for its ideal. Stirner ably summarised the steps in the liberal and radical syllogism since Rousseau. Quote, First, the individual is not man. Therefore, his individual personality is of no account, no personal will, no arbitrariness, no orders or mandates. Second, the individual has nothing human. Therefore, no mine and thine or property is valid. Third, as the individual neither is man or has anything human, he shall not exist at all. He shall, as an egoist, with his egoistic belongings, be annihilated by criticism to make room for man, man just discovered. End quote. The destruction of men is thus the logical conclusion of this worship of man. The Hegelians had abolished God, the God of Christianity, But they had not abolished the beyond. A new and more deadly beyond had been created in ideal man, an imminent and perfect one who obliterated the imminent but imperfect many. As against this, Stirner held, there is no right outside me. It follows, therefore, that, quote, every state is a despotism, be the despot one or many, or, as one is likely to imagine about a republic, if all be lords, that is, despotise one over another. End quote. There is a way of changing this. Quote, Only by recognising no duty, that is, not binding myself or letting myself be bound. If I have no duty, then I know no law either. End quote. No law, truth, person or thing can be higher than the individual. Quote, for me there is no truth, for nothing is more than I. Not even my essence, not even the essence of man is more than I. In 1846, the realm of understanding and the individual, probably written by a clergyman, Dr. Carl Schmidt, according to Erdmann, held that, quote, Max Stirner is the one who really represents the culminating point of the tendency begun by Hegel. In him, the self-consciousness of the egoist has the highest place, and to this self-consciousness all abstractions have to yield. What now, if the egoist, described by a nomen appellativum, were, just for this reason, an abstraction himself? End quote. <clears throat> Stirner logically denied the beyond of God and of man in terms of Hegel. He denied any idea or ideal as belonging to this myth mythical beyond. He was thus he was thus he was thus left with nothing by way of definition for man. The starting point of Descartes' philosophy and of the modern age, I am, was now its conclusion also, but between Descartes and Stirner, 
because the whole world of God and meaning had been declared null and void, neither I nor am had any meaning. The one and the many had been brought down to earth, then the one abolished, and the many made meaningless. Stirner concluded his work with these words, All things are nothing to me, or literally, I have set my affair on nothing. All things being nothing to Stirner, then his ego was logically nothing also. Perhaps Stirner's most vitriolic critic was Marx. In a long section, usually omitted from, usually omitted now from editions of the German ideology, Marx unleashed a rambling attack on Stirner's work. Saint, Ma Saint Max had identified Hegel's spirit with the individual and had disposed of the world. For Marx, this meant a deprecation of history which was intolerable. The individual, instead of being the centre of the world, is, for Marx, the product of history. Quote, the changing of oneself coincides with the changing of circumstances. End quote. This does not mean that Stirner is right, Max declared, in charging that communists seek to abolish the individual in favour of the general self-sacrificing man. The reason for Marx's savage attack on Stirner thus is seen. Both Stirner and Marx were competing Hegelians seeking to identify the true revelation of Hegel's spirit. Both saw the world basically as a realm of change. Neither had any valid principle for asserting the ultimacy of anything in the face of that change and chance. Both, consequently, asserted a purely arbitrary and personal priority for their concepts. Marx, thus, had to overwhelm Stirner with abuse in order to assert his own thesis. His critique is accordingly essentially abuse plus a restatement of the communist thesis. As against Christianity, Marx could assert the ultimacy of change and thereby rule God's sovereignty an impossible concept. This same principle left him no ground for countering the rivalry of another philosophy of chance. As against Sancho's eagle or ego or individual, Marx asserted that the communist organisation of society would best affect the domination of chance and circumstances by the individual. Quote, the transformation of the individual relationship into its opposite, a merely material relationship, to distinction of individuality and chance by the individuals themselves, as we have already shown, is a historical process and at different stages of development assumes different, even sharper and more universal forms. In the present epoch, the domination of material conditions over individuals and the suppression of individuality by chance has assumed its sharpest and most universal form, thereby setting existing individuals a very definite task. It has set them the task of replacing the domination of circumstances and of chance over individuals by the domination of individuals over chance and circumstances. It has not, as Sancho imagines, put forward the demand that I should develop myself, which up to now every individual has done without Sancho's good advice. It has instead called for liberation from one quite definite mode of development. This task, dictated by present-day conditions, coincides with the task of the communist organisation of society. End quote. To all practical intent, the central difference between Stirner and Marx is one of choice. Chance is ultimate at present, 
but man must dominate chance and circumstances with his own decree. For Stirner, the method is the individual's radical autonomy. For Marx, the method is the communist organisation of society. Marx did not disprove Stirner's anarchism. He denied its utility for the humanist's goal. Section 4. Karl Marx Stirner was not as radical as he believed himself to be. Stirner had denied God, man, law and spirit, but he had not denied logic. His whole exercise of re reason was a logical development of the implications of Hegel. But why should logic be any more binding on man than God? Stirner had simply created a new beyond in terms of which he appealed to all men. Why should reason compel men? If the compulsions of God be denied, then the compulsions of reason can be equally denied as alien to man's will. In terms of this, Karl Marx, 1818-1883, in his many writings, simply bypassed Stirner. In his Theses on Feuerbach, he gave his reason. Quote, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. End quote. <clears throat> logic was thus irrelevant as a binding force. Logic and reason are merely tools, instruments of man as he changes the world. Action is thus basic, not thought. Stirner belonged to Feuerbach's world. In Gary North's world, words, quote, it conceived of man as a plastic, observing creature totally subject to the material reality about him, end quote. In striking at Feuerbach, whose work Stirner and Engels had welcomed, Marx struck at all philosophy. Marx's truth was not in man nor in philosophy, it was in history. Hegel had brought the beyond down to earth. Stirner placed the beyond in reason and logic. Marx followed Hegel more closely in that he placed meaning in history. Above the individual man was now the beyond of history, history as the source of meaning and of authority. The creation of a new society is the goal. To that purpose, reason is instrumental. Marx was a pragmatist in this respect. John Dewey, 1859-1952, saw reason and man in instrumental terms. Dewey's beyond was the great community. He differed from Marx only in methodology. For Dewey, the public will remain in eclipse. That is, man will not truly be man until the great community arrives. The public will remain shadowy and formless. Man is not truly man until the planners achieve their purpose. Dewey's works underlined the truth of Stirner's analysis of the liberal and radical syllogism. Stirner had denied an, an ultimate or immediate one. Marx and Dewey denied the many. For Marx, it was the duty of philosophers to chart the necessary course of action, and for the proletariat to execute that action. The requirement for action by the proletariat was simply this. Since the proletariat had nothing at stake, it would assent most readily to the total dissolution of existing society by revolution. In his call to revolution as historical action, Marx said, Let us revolt against the rule of thoughts. The purpose of this revolt is freedom. Here the ghost of Hegel again prevails. Hegel's goal was the freedom of the individual from jealous Jehovah, and history was, for Hegel, the new area of determination. 
Marx was faithful to this aspect of Hegel. He simply stripped Hegel's verbiage from Hegel's goal. In the process, however, he also dropped the world of Christian meaning with which Hegel cloaked his terms. Like Stirner, Marx now had a problem of meaning. What is freedom? North has brilliantly exposed Marx's embarrassment over this problem. Marx, after struggling with the problem of the meaning of freedom, could only lamely conclude, quote, the shortening of the working day is its fundamental premise, end quote. North's comment on this answer is telling, quote, the paucity of the answer is staggering, incredible. If so much misery had not been laundered by Marx's labours for the forces of revolution, and if so many lives had not been destroyed in the name of Marx, that answer would be amusing in its pathetic quality. End quote. Marx denied the rule of reason in favour of historical action. As a result, because all reasoning is class-conditioned for Marxist, Marxists, the use of logic is futile against Marxists. Quote, what use is it to go and say to a Marxist, your ideas don't make sense? One might as well talk to a deaf man. End quote. Talk to a Marxist of freedom, and he redefines freedom to fit the needs of the Marxist regime. But God, having made man, it is God's definition which lingers in men's hearts in the Soviet Union, not that of Karl Marx. Marxist freedom has meant longer working hours and a meaningless life. Section 5. Nietzsche. In Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, 1844-1900, philosophy very def definitely abandoned the clouds of the beyond for the practical considerations of the present, and for eleven years of insanity. Nietzsche observed, quote, As I have written, if there were gods, how could I endure it not to not, how could I endure it to be not God? Therefore there are no gods. End quote. Nietzsche was here quoting a fundamental sentence and concept from Thus Spake Zarathustra. In that work he went on to say what would there be to create if there were gods? The point is an important one. It is not the truth about God that matters, but simply that Nietzsche cannot tolerate the God concept unless he himself is God. Even more than Marx, Nietzsche has no use for reason and logic. Why ascribe meaning and truth to reason and logic and thereby establish a new beyond over man? Accordingly, Nietzsche, to express bluntly his break with traditional religion and philosophy, affirmed the pragmatic value and utility of what was regarded as a lie or as falseness. Quote, the falseness of an opinion is not for us any objection to it. It is here, perhaps, that our new language sounds most strangely. The question is, how far an opinion is life-furthering, life-preserving, species-preserving, perhaps species-rearing, and we are fundamentally inclined to maintain that the falsest opinions, to which the synthetic judgment a priori belong, are the most indispensable to us, that without a, a recognition of logical fictions, without a comparison of reality with the purely imagined world of the absolute and immutable, without a constant counterfeiting of the world by means of numbers, man could not live, that the renunciation of false opinions would be a renunciation of life, a negation of life. To recognise untruth as a condition of life, 
that is certainly to impugn the traditional ideas of value in a dangerous manner, and a philosophy which ventures to do so has thereby alone placed itself beyond good and evil. End quote. Truth is thus irrelevant. More than that, it is a nuisance, in that man needs to lie to live and to realise himself as God. To live, this is the goal, and to live without God means to will to be God. Thus, the life force is the will to power, the will to be Superman, more to be God. As Foster, in his admiring study of Nietzsche, recognised, Nietzsche's Zarathustra is hard, egotistical, knowing neither love nor justice. Quote, he knows but one law, and that law is his own law, the law of his own force, the law which is at once its own sanction and its own delimitation. End quote. Ostensibly now, the beyond is abolished and God is dead. Man is freed from truth and can be himself, without regard to either the absolute truth or the new absolute of history. But no, Nietzsche has introduced another beyond, a most ruthless one who promises only destruction to man. Quote, I teach you the Superman. Man is something that is to be surpassed. What have you done to surpass man? End quote. A choice is given to men. Would they rather go back to beast than surpass man? Nietzsche was thus the prophet of a new order, or as his friend Lou Andreas Salome stated it in her diary, the prophet of a new religion. If man must be surpassed, then man has a hard and ruthless beyond breathing down his neck and decreeing his destruction. But what ground was there for this belief? Nietzsche had followed the Hegelians in outlawing truth, reason and the beyond. He himself wrote, with respect to the starting point of epistemology, quote, The hypothesis that, at bottom, things proceed in such a moral fashion that human reason must be right is a mere piece of good-natured and simple-minded trustfulness, the result of the belief in divine truthfulness, God regarded as the creator of all things. These concepts are our inheritance from a former existence in a beyond. End quote. In such a case, what beyond makes Nietzsche's opinions right? If everything is beyond good and evil, beyond truth and untruth, what criterion of judgment is left? Nietzsche wrote, The value of life. Every life stands by itself. All existence must be justified, and not only life, the justifying principle must be one through which life itself speaks. Life is only a means to something. It is the expression of the forms of growth in power. End quote. Clearly, a beyond is governing life, but it is an illegitimate beyond. There is no ground left for assuming that life is better than death, or that the life of tomorrow, Superman, is better than the life and man of today. Nietzsche admitted that, quote, the conscious world cannot be a starting point for valuing, an objective valuation is necessary, end quote. Nietzsche, here, Nietzsche is here sneaking in a disguised God and a veiled beyond. In fact, he denies that man or man's consciousness can be normative, or that happiness, intellectuality, or morality, or any other individual sphere of, sphere of consciousness can be the highest value. Quote, 
If we wished to postulate an adequate object of life, it would not necessarily be related in any way with the category of conscious life. It would require, rather, to explain conscious life as a mere means to itself. The denial of life regarded as the object of life, the object of evolution. Existence, a piece of tremendous stupidity. Any such mad interpretation is only the outcome of life's being measured by the factors of consciousness, pleasure and pain, good and evil. Here the means are made to stand against the end, the unholy, absurd, and above all, disagreeable means. How can the end be any use when it requires such means? But where the fault lies here, instead of looking for the end which would explain the necessity of such means, we posited an end from the start which actually excludes such means. That is, we made a desideratum in regard to certain means, especially pleasurable, rational and virtuous, into a rule, and then only did we decide what end would be desirable. Where the fundamental fault lies is in the fact that, instead of regarding consciousness as an instrument and an isolated phenomenon of life in general, we made it a standard, the highest value in life. It is the faulty standpoint of aparte ad totem, and that is why all philosophers are instinctively seeking at the present day for a collective consciousness, a thing that lives and wills consciously with all that happens, a spirit, a god. But they must be told that it is precisely thus that life is converted into a monster, that a god and a general sensorium would be necessarily something on whose account the whole existence would have to be condemned. Our greatest relief came when we eliminated the general consciousness which postulates ends and means. In this way, we ceased from being necessarily pessimists. Our greatest indictment of life was the existence of God. End quote. In this passage, Nietzsche flails at the opposition every time his own bankruptcy becomes apparent. He needs a criterion, but he will not, of course, accept God. He denies the individual consciousness, and he also denies the collective consciousness. He wants to avoid creating a God as judge over man, but he cannot accept any criterion from individual or collective man. The criterion is thus not in man or beyond man, nor in God. Nietzsche, moreover, denies the concept of being in favour of becoming, but a becoming which is eternal process, never reaching a final state. <coughs> Quote, I should like to have a concept of the world which does justice to this fact. Becoming ought to be explained without having recourse to such final designs. Becoming must appear justified at every instant, or it must defy all valuation, which has unity as its end. The present must not, under any circumstances, be justified by a future, nor must the past be justified for the sake of the present. Necessity must not be interpreted in the form of a prevailing and ruling collective force, or as a prime mover, and still less as the necessary cause of some valuable result. But to this end, it is necessary to deny a collective consciousness for becoming a God, in order that life may not be veiled under the shadow of a being who feels and knows as we do, and yet wills nothing. God is useless if he wants nothing, and if he does want something, this presupposes a general sum of suffering and irrationality which lowers the general value of becoming. Fortunately, any such, power, any such general power is lacking. 
a suffering God overlooking everything, a general sensorium and ubiquitous spirit would be the greatest indictment of existence. Strictly speaking, nothing of the nature of being must be allowed to remain, because in that case becoming loses its value and gets to sheer and superfluous nonsense. End quote. Neither thought nor existence has value or meaning. Indeed, nothing does. Nietzsche, in The Will to Power, was both affirming nihilism and trying vainly to transcend it. He affirmed a cyclical view of history and eternal recurrence, as he did extensively in Thus Spake Zarathustra, as the alternative to God's meaning and eternal decree, but this eternal recurrence is a blind, destroying monster although Nietzsche tried to give it meaning. In the concluding words of The Will to Power, Nietzsche admitted his inability to find meaning. He could only describe, quote, This world, do you want a name for this world? A solution for all its riddles? This world is the will to power and nothing more. And you yourself are this will to power and nothing more. End quote. Van Riesen comments, quote, that this will is not free, that this infinity of circular processes is a speculation, that it is difficult to see how man, driven by these processes, can ever move forward, or how he can desire such processes, all this only emphasises that nihilism, no matter what motive it takes up to save itself, can end only in a decadent ruin. But the most important thing is that Nietzsche did find in his last motive a cultural principle which would be followed by an act which would be followed in actual practice. He expected that it would bring victory over decadence and passive nihilism. We have seen this victory in our present century. It is the worship of power, the valueless activism, always restless, driven by the fear of meaninglessness, and finally pouring itself out in annihilation and self-annihilation. End quote. <clears throat> Nietzsche saw the consequences of his ideas. He regarded himself as a man of destiny whose works would shake and rearrange the world. Quote, All the mighty forms of the old society are blown into space, for they all rest on falsehood. There will be wars whose like have never been seen on earth before. Politics on a grand scale will date from me. End quote. Van Riesen's comment is very much to the point when he observes that, quote, when Nietzsche comes to the root of the question, he knows that he must choose between Jesus and himself, and then he becomes the prophet of the Antichrist. Then he wants to become the Antichrist himself. He applies ecce homo, behold the man, to himself. It would thus appear as if Nietzsche concerned himself only with Jesus. While he parodied him and sought his opposite, still Nietzsche was in fact nothing else than a parasite feeding on the gospel. Brom has rightly remarked that Zarathustra would be unthinkable without the Bible. The framework, the use of language, the comparisons, the didactic questions, the walks, the search for solitude, the frequent use of texts, literally, paraphrased or transposed, all these things which help make of Zarathustra the opponent of the gospel are borrowed from that same gospel. Nietzsche demolished everything so that he would not have to capitulate. And when he set about building, 
he could build nothing new, nothing else than a heterogeneous mixture of that which Jesus had been and the negation thereof. Gita says, and with good grounds, that Nietzsche can never be understood without considering his jealousy of the gospel. Thus Nietzsche, who sought to create a new religion, could only ape the old one. Instead of a brave new world, he ended with none at all. There was no meaning left in his world, no one, no many, only negation and nihilism. He had tried to affirm life, but he ended by affirming nihilism and death. He claimed to hate God in the name of man, but he waged war against man also in the name of the superman. A system which denies God will then deny man. No God, no man. The boastful Nietzsche, who spoke of the need of taking a whip to women, was humbled even in his prime. Lou Salome harnessed Paul Ray and Nietzsche to a cart, sat in it with a whip, and had the scene photographed. There was thus no superman either. Indeed, there was scarcely a man. In Nietzsche's own honest but self-pitying words, quote, What I tried to do was to stand on my own shoulders, to superimpose nature upon nature, denying a creator God, insisting that the world lives on itself, feeds on its own excrement, as I say somewhere among my notes. Where did Titanism of defiance lead me? To the same pit as Schopenhauer's Titanism of denial, to moral and spiritual exhaustion, to the nothingness of the abyss. Levi's description of Nietzsche's will to illusion which he exhausts he exalts almost into a metaphysical instance, end quote, is most telling. Levi sees this will to illusion as a strand in modern thought, citing Otto Rank, the Freudian, as an example of the same temper. According to Rank, quote, it is to the effect that our seeking the truth in human motives for acting and thinking is destructive. With the truth one cannot live. To be able to live one needs illusions, the more a man can take reality as truth, appearance as essence, the sounder, the better adjusted, the happier he, will he be. At the moment when we begin to search after truth, we destroy reality and our relation to it. End quote. The appeal of Nietzsche rests on a will to illusion. One of Nietzsche's most revealing passages touches on the reason for the murder of God. Quote, but he had to die. He looked with his eyes, which beheld everything. He beheld men's depths and dregs, all his hidden ignominy and ugliness. His pity knew no modesty. He crept into my dirtiest corners. This most prying, over-intrusive, over-pitiful one had to die. He beheld me. On such a witness I would have revenge, or not live myself. The God who beheld everything, and also man, that God had to die. Man cannot endure it that such a witness should live. End quote. Nietzsche, a pathetic, boastful figure, decreed God's death because he could not bear to have an omnipotent God see into his heart and know his sin and ugliness. By this step, Nietzsche doomed himself. There was soon no other side to him than sin and ugliness. Nietzsche had decreed his own death. The death of God was an illusion. The collapse and death of Nietzsche was the reality. <coughs> Section 6. Sartre. 
with Jean-Paul Sartre, born 1905, a relative of Albert Schweitzer, we find ourselves in the world of radical existentialism. The extent to which Sartre has sought to be consistent in his existentialism appears strikingly in the title of his major work, Being and Nothingness. Why not, one may well wonder, being and freedom, since so radical an urge to freedom governs his philosophy? Again, why not the, work, the title why not title the work Being and Essence or Essence or Existence and Essence, since a sharp separation of the two is so important a starting point for Sartre. The reason for Sartre's title rests with Sartre himself, but perhaps an aspect of his title choice was a bypassing of the traditional aspects of philosophy. Nothingness for Sartre is given. It is, quote, at the heart of being, end quote. Sartre wants no dualism of being and non-being, or of being and nothingness. Quote, Man presents himself as a being who causes nothingness to arise in the world, inasmuch as he himself is affected with non-being to this end. end quote. In brief, non-being exists only on the surface of being. Sartre's doctrine of nothingness is a parallel to the biblical doctrine of creation out of nothing. If man, as the new god, is to create his own essence, then he must do so out of nothingness. As Reinhardt noted, Quote, Christianity teaches not only that everything that is was created out of nothing, but also that everything would sink back into nothingness the moment God were to withdraw his all-sustaining creative power. This is why Nietzsche's, or Sartre's, man without God, moves in a meaningless void which he vainly and desperately tries to populate with the stillborn creatures of his own whims and fancies. And since in Christianity, as in no other religion, man's existence is absolutely grounded in God, the atrophy of faith in God must of necessity lead to the most horrible experience of the abyss of annihilation and nothingness. End quote. Nothingness is thus a necessity for Sartre's being in order to ensure man's freedom to be God, but it also haunts being and is a continuing plague to it. Sartre's philosophy seeks to be realistic in terms of man in the modern world. In regarding with approval Castro's Cuban Revolution, Sartre titled a chapter, in part, Death to Abstract Principles. These words echo, uh, in part, the temper of the modern mind and Sartre's existentialism. But the reality is that a new set of abstract principles prevails. Sartre's being is one of these new abstractions. Sartre introduces a Cartesian dualism between being in itself and being for itself. Being in itself is the self-contained being of a thing, whereas being for itself, quote, is co-extensive with the re realm of consciousness, and the nature of consciousness is that it is perpetually beyond itself, end quote. Add to this the fact that existence precedes essence. As Sartre points out, quote, Atheistic existentialism states that if God did not exist, there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence. A being who exists before he can be defined by any concept, and this being is man, or, as Heidegger says, human reality. What is meant here by saying that existence precedes essence? 
It means that, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards defines himself. If man, as the existentialist conceives him, is indefinable, it is because at first he is nothing. Only afterward will he be something, and he himself will have made what he will be. Thus there is no human nature, since there is no God to conceive it. Not only is man what he conceives himself to be, but he is also only what he wills himself to be after this thrust toward existence. Man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. Such is the first principle of existentialism. End quote. Sartre defines existentialism as the belief, quote, that existence precedes essence, or, if you prefer, that subjectivity must be the starting point. Man is nothing else but what he makes of himself, end quote. Because man is alone in the world, man is both totally free and totally responsible in that he is the new maker of himself. Quote, Dostoyevsky said, if God didn't exist, everything would be possible. That is the very starting point of existentialism. Indeed, everything is permissible if God does not exist, and as a result, man is forlorn, because neither within him nor without does he find anything to cling to. He can't start making excuses for himself. If existence really does precede essence, there is no explaining things away by reference to a fixed and given human nature. In other words, there is no determinism. Man is free. Man is freedom. On the other hand, if God does not exist, we find no values or commands to turn to which legitimise our conduct. So, in the bright realm of values, we have no excuse behind us, nor justification before us. We are alone with no excuses. That is the idea I shall try to convey when I say that man is condemned to be free. Condemned because he did not create himself, yet in other respects is free, because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. The existentialist does not believe in the power of passion. He will never agree that a sweeping passion is a ravaging torrent which fatally leads a man to certain acts and is therefore an excuse. He thinks that man is responsible for his passion. Ponger, in a very fine article, has said, Man is the future of man. That's exactly it. End quote. <clears throat> to maintain this radical freedom and responsibility, Sartre denied the validity of the concept of the unconscious and of Freud's psychoanalytic theory. It cannot be true, because man is freedom, not a product of the id. Man is freedom because there is no God who created him, determined man's nature and history, or established a law over man. The freedom of man is his urge to be God, to be his own maker and determiner. Quote, Thus, the best way to conceive of the fundamental project of human reality is to say that man is the being whose project is to be God. End quote. Quote, To be man means to reach toward being God. Or, if you prefer, man fundamentally is the desire to be God. It may be asked, if man, on coming into the world, is born toward God as toward his limit, he can choose only to be God. What becomes of freedom? 
For freedom is nothing other than a choice which creates for itself its own possibilities. But it appears here that the initial project of being God, which defines man, comes close to being the same as a human nature or an essence. The answer is that while the meaning of the desire is ultimately the project of being God, the desire is never constituted by this meaning. On the contrary, it always represents a particular discovery of its ends. The only being which can be called free is the being which annihilates its being. Moreover, we know that annihilation is lack of being and cannot be otherwise. Freedom is precisely the being which makes itself a lack of being. End quote. <clears throat> the threat is clearly seen by Sartre. To say that man is the being whose project is to be God is in effect to ascribe a nature or essence to man. Only by placing a nothingness between man and his goal, the desire to become God, does Sartre escape rather dubiously from giving man a nature. For Sartre, man makes himself man in order to be God. Sartre is at great pains to avoid giving man a nature. Because man is in process of making himself, it becomes difficult to affix responsibility to this ostensibly totally responsible being. The man guilty of a crime yesterday is not the same man who we face today. If it is demanded that a homosexual frankly admit that he is one in the name of sincerity and truth, have we not identified an act and the man? Quote, the critic asks the man then to be what he is in order no longer to be what he is. It is the, it is the profound meaning of the saying, a sin confessed is half pardoned. The critic demands of the guilty one that he constitute himself as a thing precisely on all in order no longer to treat him as a thing. End quote. Thus, bad faith and sincerity are for Sartre not very different. There is thus freedom, and there is responsibility, but no guilt, since man is responsible to himself. Instead of an antithesis between good and evil, there is an Hegelian synthesis as the road to freedom, as, as the road to freedom realized as God. Not surprisingly, Sartre found a hero or saint in a criminal who denied guilt and affirmed his freedom in acts against God's order. God in Christian philosophy is the principle of definition because he is the sovereign Lord and creator. All facts being created facts have their true meaning only in and through God. Sartre's man, like God, is the principle of definition. This means that man cannot define himself because of his freedom. Much of Sartre's painstaking labour in being and nothingness is his attempt to analyse man without defining him, to know man without ascribing a nature or essence to man. God's freedom is that he is the sovereign God. He has an absolute, perfect, uncreated and unchanging being and essence. Man's freedom in Sartre is negative in essence. Man's freedom is from God, for Sartre. This freedom leaves man without essence, without meaning, with only being. There is, therefore, no possibility of definition. Medieval philosophy sought with precision to define the nature of God. Sartre seeks the same precision to understand man without defining him, an amazing effort. Sartre's being and nothingness is the theology of man, 
spelled out with precision, if the word precision can be used for the undefined. Significantly, part one is titled, The Problem of Nothingness. The old question, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle, is more relevant than much of Sartre's philosophy. Significantly, as Sartre deals with man's nature without calling it a nature, he considers shame in reference not to God but to the other. Quote, shame is by nature recognition. I recognise that I am as the other sees me. End quote. The other is, of course, other men, here designated and capitalised as the other. Man's freedom is arbitrary. Man's only responsibility is to himself. In Spears' summary words, man is the only measure of all value and truth in Sartre. Since every man has this same arbitrary freedom, the freedom of the other is a threat to man's freedom, and a man's neighbour is his greatest problem and threat. At the same time, the other can cause man to know shame and in this sense is like the God of Scripture, who brings man to shame with the self-knowledge of his nakedness before God. Sartre's individual is a being in process of making himself God. Until that process is realised, the other functions as man's God and devil. Man's being is without essence for Sartre, and there is no beyond. God, if he exists, is irrelevant, because man's being is still, by definition, without essence, that is, uncreated and undetermined by that God. Sartre's man cannot know himself because he has no essence or nature. He is in process of becoming God, but in that process he is still beyond definition. How, then, can man even know that he is in process? At this point, the other enters as the new God. In effect, the new principle of definition, insofar as any definition can exist. Quote, the philosophies of Descartes and Kant, to the contrary, through the I think, we reach our own self in the presence of others, and the others are just as real to us as our own self. Thus, the man who becomes aware of himself through the cogito also perceives all others, and he perceives them as the condition of his own existence. He realises that he cannot be anything in the sense that we say that someone is witty or nasty or jealous unless others recognise it as such. In order to get any truth about myself, I must have contact with another person. The other is indispensable to my own existence as well as to my knowledge about myself. This being so, in discovering my inner being, I discover the other person at the same time like a freedom placed in front of me which thinks and wills only for or against me. Hence, let me at once announce the discovery of a world which we shall call intersubjectivity. This is the world in which man decides what he is and what others are. Besides, if it is impossible to find in every man some universal essence which would be human nature, yet there does exist a universal human condition. It's not by chance that today's thinkers speak more readily of man's condition than of his nature. By condition, they mean, more or less definitely, the a priori limits which outline man's fundamental situation in the universe. End quote. God is no longer the condition of man's existence. Others are. Man does not have a universal essence which would be human nature. He does have a condition, that is, his fundamental situation in the universe. <clears throat> it 
It would be easy to say that this condition imposes limitation and governments on man internally and externally, so that a nature of man can be spoken of, but let us grant Sartre his intense desire to escape a nature or essence. Let us also grant him his meaning for man's freedom and responsibility. Quote, the essential consequence of our earlier remarks is that man, being condemned to be free, carries the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. He is responsible for the world and for himself in a way of being. We are taking the world responsibility in its ordinary sense as consciousness of being the incontestable author of an event or an object. End quote. It is strange that this man who is condemned to be free and whose freedom is to become God, should find the other so great a threat. Quote, the appearance of the other in the world corresponds therefore to a fixed sliding of the whole universe, to a decentralization of the world, which undermines the centralization which I am simultaneously offering. End quote. As Streller summed it up in his analysis of Sartre, the other robs me of my world. It is through the individual that the world exists, but this is not true of the other. Quote, Human reality remains alone because the other's existence has the nature of a contingent and irreducible fact. We encounter the other, we do not constitute him. End quote. The world exists through me, but the other alters that world, for, quote, the others look as the necessary condition of my objectivity is the destruction of all objectivity for me. The others look touches me across the world and is not only a transformation of myself, but a total metamorphosis of the world. I am looked at in a world which is looked at. End quote. All this is not surprising. Having removed God as the beyond of his philosophy, Sartre has a new and imminent beyond to threaten and determine him, to fill him with shame and self-consciousness. Sartre cannot escape into a world where he is not looked at. How much the other is a threat to Sartre appears in his treatment of sex. Sex is not for him a harmless matter. Again, the man-woman relationship is not seen in Christian terms, with the woman as man's helpmeet in his calling, the sexual act is loaded with a desire for communication which is metaphysical. In common with much modern thought, Sartre is in quest of cosmic coition. But the act is dangerous. The whole is a nothingness to be filled with man's flesh. It calls for a sacrifice of man's body to bring it into existence the plenitude of being. In Sartre's words, quote, It is only from this standpoint that we can pass on to sexuality. The obscenity of the feminine sex is that of everything which gapes open. It is an appeal to being as all wholes are. In herself, woman appeals to a strange flesh which is to transform her into a fullness of being by penetration and dissolution. Conversely, woman senses her condition as an appeal precisely because she is in the form of a whole. This is the true origin of Adler's complex. Beyond any doubt, her sex is a mouth and a voracious mouth which devours the penis, a fact which can easily lead to the idea of castration. The amorous act is the castration of the man, but this above all, because sex is a whole. 
we have to do here with a pre-sexual contribution, which will become one of the components of sexuality as an empirical, complex human attitude, but which, far from deriving its origin from the sexed being, has nothing in common with basic sexuality, the nature of which we have explained in Part 3. Nevertheless, the experience with the whole, when the infant sees the reality, includes the ontological pres presentiment of sexual experience in general. It is with his flesh that the child strops up the whole and the whole before all sexual specification is an ob obscene expectation, an appeal to the flesh. End quote. In No Exit, Sartre has Garcin declare, Hell is other people. As Levi has very aptly observed, quote, Hell is other people for Sartre because in his quaint universe of appropriation and domination, a kind of Hobbesian state of nature where the stakes are not the externals of wealth and deference but purely internal states of consciousness like nausea, shame, pride and alienation, all contact with the other implies a latent contest. End quote. In order to eliminate God, Sartre makes nothingness prior to being. In a basic sense, nothingness is the given, and it ultimately governs his philosophy. The attempt of man to be God is a futile one. Sartre concludes in a famous passage, quote, Every human being is a passion in that it projects losing itself it projects losing itself so as to found being, and by the same stroke to constitute the in itself, which escapes all contingency by being its own foundation, the ens causa sui, which religions call God. Thus the passion of man is the reverse of that of Christ, for man loses himself as man in order that God may be born. But the idea of God is contradictory, and we lose ourselves in vain. Man is, use, is a useless passion. End quote. Sartre's philosophy gives us no reason for staying alive and no reason for suicide either. Not only his man, but also his philosophy is a futile passion. His individual is the one and the many in a strange sense. Sartre's man is the one in existence and the one against the many others. But Sartre's man is also the many in that he has no essence. He is a miscellaneous collection of anguish and agony seeking to be God, and all of it a useless passion. Section 7. Wittgenstein. It is difficult to comment on Ludwig Wittgenstein, 1889-1951, not only because of the difficulty of understanding his disorganised jottings, but also because his many followers, a strange swarm of eunuchs, buzz angrily if anyone differs with what Wittsch has called the precise esoteric interpretation that a thorough Wittgensteinian would want to place upon the text. Wittgenstein's concern was not with existence but with language, and his famous slogan was, The meaning is the use. <coughs> As Barrett has summed it up, Bertrand Russell, in analysing language, felt that to exist is to satisfy a propositional function, that is, satisfy the equation. As a purist in logic, Wittgenstein sought to separate existence and logic, although with poor success. 
Wittgenstein's requirements of language were hard and precise. He would have agreed with Sartre's rejection of the unconscious. For Wittgenstein, 5.6, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. 5.6.1, logic pervades the world. The limits of the world are also its limits. So we cannot say in logic, the world has this in it and this, but not that. For that would appear to presuppose we were excluding certain possibilities, and this cannot be the case, since it would require that logic should go beyond the limits of the world, for only in that way could it view those limits from the other side as well. We cannot think what we cannot think, so what we cannot think we cannot say either. 5.6.2 This remark provides the key to the problem how much truth there is in solipsism. For what the solipsist means is quite correct, only it cannot be said, but makes itself manifest. The world is my world. This is manifest in the fact that the limits of language, of language which alone I understand, means the limits of my world. The world and life are one. End quote. <clears throat> For such a philosophy... The traditional problems of philosophy are irrelevant, and the questions troubling existentialism are also irrelevant. True, Wittgenstein speaks of objects and facts, but these terms have no reference, as Levi pointed out, to an outside world. Quote, so quixotic is this usage that it is not always easy to remember that Wittgenstein is not talking about a material, but a logical space and that this universe has more in common with Leibniz's universe of logical possibilities than with a Newtonian universe of spatio-temporal actualities. Only such, as this, such a distinction permits us to recognise that the efforts of Tractatus are not directed towards the establishment of specifications for an adequate ordinary language, but for an artificial language analogous to that of Principia Mathematica, end quote. Wittgenstein himself has made this clear, quote, Laws like the principles of sufficient reason, etc., are about the net and not about what the net describes, end quote, from 6.35. In fact, all propositions are of equal value, 6.4. However, Wittgenstein recognised that the sense of the world must lie outside the world, 6.41. However, that sense, if the term can be used, lies outside and beyond the world to the point of being irrelevant. Quote, and so it is impossible for there to be propositions of ethics. Propositions can express nothing of what is higher. End quote. From 6.42. The charge of mysticism, accepted by some and rejected by other Wittgensteinians, rests on this assumption. Wittgenstein stated that his propositions were steps to be transcended, to see the world aright, from 6.54, and then enter, apparently, into silence, from 7. Wittgenstein's philosophy is thus not concerned with truth, but rather with a pursuit of meaning and sense, to cite Maslow's phrase. Wittgenstein worked to limit the scope of language and to make it precise within those limits. Engelmann's statement of that achievement, intended as favourable, is especially telling. Quote, the positive achievement of Wittgenstein 
which has so far met with complete incomprehension is his pointing to what is manifest in a proposition. And what is manifest in it, a proposition cannot also state explicitly. The poet's sentences, for instance, achieve their effect not through what they say, but what is manifest in them, and the same holds for music, which also says nothing. End quote. It is true that Wittgenstein's insistence on a logical language makes it militate, as High pointed out, against the verbal games played by neo-Orthodox theologians. But it must be added that it militates even more against the language of Christian orthodoxy and its insistence on pr propositional truth. <coughs> In no sense can Wittgenstein be seen as congenial to Christian orthodoxy. Wittgenstein's hand is raised against all those champions of truth who are blessed possessors, who have a deposit of truth as their foundation. According to Wittgenstein, quote, at the bottom the whole Weltanschauung of the modern involves the illusion that the so-called laws of nature are explanations of natural phenomena, end quote, from 6.371. This he restated in the Tractatus. Quote, the whole modern conception of the, of the world is founded on the illusion that the so-called laws of nature are the explanations of natural phenomena. End quote. According to Wittgenstein, there are two godheads, the world and my independent I. Thus, a basic dualism appears, but it, it does not trouble Wittgenstein. The dualism he has worked to overcome is, quote, that there are abstract entities called meanings which exist above and over the world, the words that express them, and the people who utter them. End quote. The world and man exist independently, both without any truth. Wittgenstein's interest is not in truth, but in language, and language as an instrument, from 569. <coughs> in fact, quote, Look at the sentence as an instrument and its essence as its employment, end quote, from 421. Just as a hammer, pliers, saw and other tools each has its function, so all words have their varying functions. But what is their function? Is not truth but rather meaning and sense? But what meaning and sense exist without truth? Language is an instrument. But for what purpose? Granted his original premises, the paranoid patient of a, mental, of a mental institution is strictly logical, and his language is, the instrument, is instrumental to his presuppositions. In Wittgenstein, philosophy ended in a sick monologue. The other is no threat. The gate to the other and the beyond has been shut, and man remains inside himself, sick and dying. Wittgenstein apparently saw this himself. Quote, on the flyleaf of Moritz Schlick's copy of the Tractatus, Wittgenstein wrote, Jeder dieser Sätze ist der Ausdruck einer Krankheit. Every one of these propositions is the expression of an illness. My guess is that Frankheit was due, at least on the philosophical level, to the conflict between Wittgenstein's growing positivistic conviction convictions and his metaphysical tendencies. In the background of his pithy pronouncements, one hears not only the clear voices of Frege and Russell, but the muffled voices of Kant, Schopenhauer, Plato, and even St. Augustine. 
and this conflict is reflected even in Wittgenstein's vocabulary. End quote. <coughs> Maslow pointed out that, for Wittgenstein, a significant language means simplicity, simple elements, and atomistic facts. But Wittgenstein provides no satisfactory criterion for simplicity. The only criterion of simplicity is one established by ourselves, not found in the world. Wittgenstein's My Independent I reigns alone over nothing. But his success is due precisely to the fact that his philosophy is the expression of an illness. In the modern world, there are many sick minds. In 1918, Sherwood Anderson observed of Edgar Lee Masters, author of Spoon River Anthology, quote, I got the notion fixed in my mind that his, Masters' successes had been founded on hatred. End quote. Not only Masters' success, but also that of many others since, has been founded on hatred and illness. In the world of the sick, the sickest are kings. Section 8. Marcus. Herbert Marcus deserves attention very briefly for his comments on Hegel. As a radical and leftist, Marcus is closer to Hegel than most commentators. In a telling preface entitled A Note on Dialectic, Marcus began, quote, This book was written in the hope that it would make a small contribution to the revival, not of Hegel, but of a mental faculty which is in danger of being obliterated, the power of negative thinking. As Hegel defines it, thinking is indeed essentially the negation of that which is immediately before us. What does he mean by negation? The central category of dialectic? End quote. <clears throat> the power of negative thinking. What does this mean? What is it that must be negated? The world contradicts itself. Negative thinking is the tool by which the contradictions are resolved. Quote, Dialectical thought invalidates the a priori opposition of value and fact by understanding all facts as stages of a single process, a process in which subject and object are so joined that truth can be determined only within the subject-object totality. End quote. More plainly, the determinism of the world contradicts man's belief in his freedom, and negative thinking institutes a negation of thought and action as against the world to bend it to man's revolutionary reason. After Hegel, the real is the rational. That is, it is progress in the consciousness of freedom, Hegel's phrase, as it remakes the world to conform to man's freedom. This means revolution. Quote, Dialectical thought starts with the experience that the, other, that the world is unfree. That is to say, man and nature exist in conditions of alienation, exist other than they are, end quote. Reason or thought sees the contradictory nature of reality and transforms it. Because freedom is the innermost dynamic of essence, it is essentially negative towards an unfree world and seeks to master alienation. Quote, for the history of mankind, this means attainment of a state of the world in which the individual persists in inseparable harmony with the whole, and in which the conditions and relations of his world possess no essential objectivity independent of the individual. And so the prospect of attaining such a state... As to the prospect of attaining such a state, Hegel was pessimistic. End quote. 
but Marcuse is not. It means shattering the present world order to create a totally man-made world and order which has no essential objectivity independent of the individual. Thus, dialectical philosophy, entering a world it did not create, is of necessity destructive in thought and action. It looks ahead to a whole which is beyond good and evil, truth and falsehood, that is, beyond God. The reason of the free man, the man who declares his autonomy from God, is, in effect, Marcuse's Messiah. Marcuse's two meaningful propositions describing our situation are the whole truth is the truth and the whole is false. A new whole must be established beyond good and evil. Man is defined by Marcuse after Hegel in terms of reason. Freedom, presupposed autonomous reason and autonomous reason, presupposes reason. Man is defined by Marcuse after Hegel in terms of reason. Freedom presupposed autonomous reason, and autonomous reason presupposes freedom, but freedom and reason especially exists only through its realisation, the process of its being made real. This means remaking the world. The process is revolution. Of the social order, Marcuse writes, quote, and Hegel continues that which persists in this merely empirical manner, without being adapted to the idea of reason, cannot be regarded as real. The political system has to be destroyed and transformed into a new rational order. Such a transformation cannot be made without violence. End quote. The first sentence is an accurate report of Hegel's position. The second is Marcuse's conclusion. But Marcuse's conclusion follows logically from Hegel's premise and is more faithful to Hegel than the formally correct statements of timid professors who cite Hegel's words but not his meaning. Because there is no essence to man, being is a continuous becoming, not a state. Every state of existence has to be surpassed. Truth is a process and cannot be stated as a proposition. Hence, falsehood, bondage and irrationality are themselves essential parts of the truth. The goal is a world of truth created by man. Quote, the world is an estranged and untrue world so long as man does not destroy its dead objectivity and recognise himself and his own life behind the fixed form of things and laws. When he finally wins this self-consciousness, he is on his way not only to the truth of himself, but also of his world. And with the recognition goes the doing. He will try to put this truth into action and make the world what it essentially is, namely the fulfilment of man's self-consciousness. This means total war against God's beyond in the name of man's beyond, the revolutionary world order. Man's instrument is the power of negative thinking and revolutionary destruction. Is it any wonder that the world is given over to destruction? Marcuse, having denied an essence in order to strike at God's order, reveals here a new essence implicit in his negative thinking. The world is already essentially the fulfilment of man's self-consciousness. The war has been newly declared, and Marcuse is dividing the spoils before the battle. King Ahab, for all his evil, had better sense. Quote, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. 
End quote. From 1 Kings 20 verse 11. <coughs> A final note. There is no one and many in Marcus because there is no truth, only process. Neither the oneness or unity of things, nor the particularity or individuality of things, is of any importance. All alike are committed to a process of destruction. The one and the many apply to life. Philosophy, from Hegel to Marcus, applies to death and invites it. Section 9. Hammerschild. Although modestly and philosophically worded, Man is the new god of philosophy. Not surprisingly, politics in the modern world has increasingly assumed a messianic character. In De Hammerschild, the late Secretary General of the United Nations, this messianic note came prominently to the fore after his death and was duly commended. Hammerschild, died 1961, was a homosexual. He may have been responsible for his plane's crash by his suicidal urge. For Hammerschild, a modern man, life was meaningless. What I ask for is absurd, that life should have a meaning. It was therefore necessary for him to provide the meaning. You are your own God. Hammerschild cited scripture extensively in terms of this identification of himself with God. Not I, but God in me. It should be noted that he recognised no God out there, no God beyond himself. In a famous and central passage, Hammerschild wrote, quote, Your responsibility is indeed terrifying. If you fail, it is God, thanks to your having betrayed him, who will fail mankind. You fancy, you fancy you can be responsible to God. Can you carry the responsibility for God? End quote. He spoke of the holiness of human life before which we bow down in worship. Hammerschild's faith was existential. Quote, His modern day prophet was Martin Buber, whose book I and Thou expressed almost his own view. End quote. Goldman felt that Hammerschild confused himself with God, but gave the markings on the whole a friendly review, as did most reviewers. Quote, one of the harshest criticisms came from a man who said, His Christ is not Christianity's saviour, the son of man who died for our sins, but rather a brother who had gone ahead of Hammerschild along the same path. This same critic, Bartels, had said that Hammerschild saw himself as a saviour figure who desired to sacrifice himself for mankind through death. Norden's study documented this latter change. In the face of Hammerschel's statements in Markings, which records his views up to the time of his death, an associate of Billy Graham assured the world that Hammerschel was a Christian. Writing a review, a review of Henry P. Van Dusen's De Hammerschel, The Statesman and His Faith, 1967, Ritt declared, quote, This is a moving book about a great spirit of our time. As far as I know, only one man was fully aware of De Hammerschild's secret faith before the appearance of the spiritual diary he kept for 30 years. That man was Billy Graham. The evangelist had learned in private conversation what none of the personnel of the United Nations Secretariat, over which Hammerschild presided for nearly a decade, had apparently discovered. 
that the lonely Swede had a strong personal faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. This fact was brought out in Graham's statements at the time of the African Plain tragedy when the Evangelist's tribute, unlike others from around the world, referred to Hammarskjöld's deep devotion to Christ. End quote. With these words, we conclude our analysis of the war against the beyond. As Wirt's words make clear, it is also a war against truth and against meaning. This is the way the world goes, both with a bang and a whimper. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.